You are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. <laughs> I'm not crying. It's just today's Rootbound sponsor. Onions. Onions. Chop them and weep. Hi everyone, thank you for listening to this episode of Rootbound. I am the host of this podcast, and my name is Steve. And Rootbound is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And each week, I invite a guest who joins me on the show to share with us all about a plant that is meaningful to them. And then I share with a guest about a plant that is meaningful to me. And through this process, we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. It is the philosophy of the show that everybody has a plant that is meaningful to them, if you just think about it a little bit. And that's because plants are so integral to our lives as humans on this planet. Now, before we meet our guest today, I've been thinking about cellulose, and you'll find out why in just a minute when we talk to our guest, but let's talk about cellulose. What is cellulose? You've probably heard that word before, um, but let's clarify uh, for each other so we can remember. It's a really cool molecule. It's a molecule that comes from plants, which is probably obvious because I'm talking about it here on the show. Um, But yeah, cellulose is a key component to the cell wall in plants. You remember that plants have this kind of special structure that that animals don't have called a cell wall, and it leads to some of the rigidity that plants have. And um, cellulose is a key component of that. Um, I read uh, in Wikipedia there was an analogy that cellulose is kind of like the rebar. If a plant wall is like made out of, imagine it being made out of like cement, the cellulose is the rebar, whereas lignin and other molecules kind of like the cement around it. So it's very strong. It's very straight. It is a um, a very long chain polymer, right? It's a, it's a repeating um, sequence of similar molecules connected together in a very long tra- chain. And it's very strong. It's interesting in a number of ways. One, it's insoluble in water. It is hydrophilic, which means it's absorbent. And yeah, it's very strong, very strong tensile strength. In fact, a lot of the strength that you know trees have or other plants have to be able to stand tall comes from that strength of cellulose, which is pretty cool. Because it's also insoluble, that means that we don't digest it. And so that means that it's a primary component of dietary fiber, which we know is all good for us. I read, interestingly, that cotton uh, is actually 90% cellulose naturally, so that's pretty cool in itself. And cellulose is in all sorts of other things we use all the time. Paper is made out of cellulose. Rayon is reconstituted cellulose. Uh, cellophane, yeah, that word cello and cellophane actually comes from the word cellulose. And we talk about cling film now and stuff and sometimes call it cellophane. Um, but that's a different material made of plastic cellophane. It's that little thicker, more crinkly, clear stuff, and it's actually made of cellulose, which is cool. Sponges are made out of cellulose. Um, and then flash paper, which is the component of modern gunpowder, um, is nitrated cellulose. And this is actually pretty interesting because the first use of nitrated cellulose was in uh, film. It was a so there was uh, some scientists realized that you can make this flexible uh, material that you could you know use in a photographic process. But the problem is is it was very very flammable. So if you read about the history of film, there was lots of uh, massive fires in places where that were storing 
um, motion picture film. And we've lost a lot of that old motion picture film because it was on this nitrated cellulose. Now, later they made another process that was like cellulose acetate, which wasn't flammable. But like humans do, we took that super flammable thing that we discovered for one purpose and repurposed it for the use in gunpowder. So uh, a little bit of a... um, of a mixed bag there um, with cellulose, but uh, it is a really fascinating chemical, and uh, you can read more about it. It, it, it. There's a lot about this this chemical and things that it can be used for, and uh, potential uh, uses, and yeah, super cool molecule, and that's all thanks to plants. Thanks, plants. <laughs> Hello, folks. Wasn't that wonderful? I want to show you a product which, as it turned out, really answered a need. It was the cellulose sponge. Years ago, in the natural sponge beds in the sea, disease developed, and it looked for a while as if we weren't going to get any more sponges. Research had developed the cellulose sponge, and its uses have been expanding ever since. Hi, Jessica. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Hi. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Great to have you. Do you have a plant to share with us today? Yes. Today, I am very excited to talk to you about the paper mulberry very shrub cool. bush. This, this is cool. I, I am the only thing I know about paper mulberry, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but we had a, one of the early episodes was about mulberry mulberry. And the thing I understand about paper mulberry is it's not actually a mulberry. Yeah, correct. It's cool. not a mulberry. It has a lot of different names depending on when and where you're talking about it. Awesome. We'll get to that maybe a little later, but first, and I think I have an inkling why of this, but first, why is this plant meaningful to you? Yeah, so I am a paper maker. I started making paper um, for the past few years, and I kind of got obsessed with the history of it, as well as like the historic connotations of the craft of making your own paper. And paper mulberry is one of the very first, if not the first, uh, fiber used to make paper for hundreds of years. Um, so I have a very strong connection to that. And there is also, there's a garden of it in Cleveland at the Morgan Conservatory, which is a big paper making foundation studio space. Um, so I've seen it in person and it's just very interesting reaction when you're like, this is, this is the plant for paper. Interesting. Um, th- th- okay. That's well, yeah. So I did know you were a paper maker, but that whole thing is very interesting to me. Like paper yeah. making in general, I think the connection of plants and paper is something I think we forget about sometimes, I mm-hmm. guess a little bit. And and I think seeing, I saw some of your videos and seeing like how hands-on you can be with like these fibers is so cool. So we'll maybe get a little bit more paper, late uh, paper making, later uh, i'm sure it's going to come into the history of this plant yeah <laughs> okay. so let's get in let's get into it uh what what are some uh, tell me more about paper mulberry I actually don't know what it looks like i i know nothing about it except for some told me it's not a mulberry back in yeah so yeah we can start off with that it's not yeah. a mulberry um it's a completely different genus um i can't pronounce its name but it's not even in like the mulberry family at all yeah. so it's more often known as kozo it's the kozo plant hmm. or the kudzu tree because it's invasive a lot in the south oh. um and it has a couple other names because it's also in Polynesian cultures, but I don't quite have those with me. But Kozo is the more like proper identification of this plant. How, how would you how do you spell that? K O Z O. Okay, I was gonna guess that. 
So, uh, yeah, so it's not really a mulberry. It looks like a red mulberry. So okay. it's just very visually similar. Um, it's got really funky leaves. It looks like a Poseidon trident. It's got, like, three prongs, and then they, like, hook in the middle instead of it just being, like, a V-shape. They do, like, a little swirly hook. They're very I think, interesting. I think yeah. now I'm picturing it. So so one thing about the mulberry is it has leaves like that, but they also have... Uh, mulberry has very shaped leaves. It has, like, three different leaf shapes. Mm-hmm. Is the paper mulberry all the same shape? It's all the same. Okay. Yeah. That's that's the one differentiation if uh, out there if you're like trying to just tell whether it's a, a mulberry or a paper mulberry if, if, if it yeah. has all the same. They're, they're very invasive and sort of all of the eastern from like Illinois down to Texas and mm. then kind of all the way across into the south. Um, they were brought over as shade trees and then just kind of took over. Interesting. Uh, where, where are they from I, originally? They are from Eastern Asia, so Eastern China, Japan, Taiwan, and, like, Korea, and mm-hmm. some of, like, the Polynesian islands, like Samoa. Interesting. Interesting. So, so they get they're, big if they're yeah, yeah, they're, uh, they grow up to 30 feet, but a lot of the times the U.S. Um, environments aren't really conducive to it, so they're, they stay pretty low to the ground, and they mm-hmm. don't usually bear fruit in the U.S., hmm. But if you go over and see them in, like, Asia or, like, the right environment kind of situation, more temperate, their fruits are, like, really alien-looking. Oh. They're, like, little red seed pods. Like, there's a big seed and, like, these little pods come off. It looks like it's from the movie Avatar. They're very cool. I'm Googling that right now. Uh, cool. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they do look super cool. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're really they're like, funky. They're, like, um, they remind me of, like, a... Um, plain tree or like sweet gum but like mm-hmm. but kind of wackier <laughs> wacky is yeah. a good word they're yeah. very wacky <laughs> yeah that's great and it sucks they don't often like get to that stage of development in like u.s temperatures so you don't really get to see it so you just get the leaves with the invasiveness you don't get the fun little flowers less, and fruits less wackiness here for yeah <laughs> <laughs> um very interesting um okay well let's 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 talk about the paper side of these. Why are why are they called paper mulberry? You said it a little bit earlier, but let's get into the details of that. Yeah, so paper, quick paper history. It was, we're, historians have given the year 105, just to give it a year. Okay. Um, in China is when they were first, at least making sheets pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it's an, it's an Asian plant. And so they somehow came across the this Kozo plant that was actually really good for making paper. Hmm. And so when that came over to the U.S., they just called it a paper mulberry because it was used in paper making. It looked like a mulberry tree. Mm. Um, but the, in Asia, they would have just called it a kozo shrub or bush. I see. I see. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about that paper making process because I think about like I, I know very little bit about it, but I know there's like some plants like papyrus that where you're using actual sheets. But in this case, we're talking about like grinding it or is there some other way that the paper is coming from the paper mulberry yeah that that's a perfect example because papyrus isn't is still used from a really long reed reeded plant but because you don't blend it together how like egyptians made papyrus is they just kind of hit it with a mallet until they all kind of smush and stuck together but when paper making first started they would kind of pick up the paper mulberry peel back the outer bark and take just the inner bark and they would boil it in something kind of like okra. And that like broke it down. Um, today we use soda ash, which is more readily available. Um, 
and that breaks down like all like the cellulose fibers and then they back then the equivalent of a blender which would just be a lot of hand manipulation of tearing apart <laughs> those fibers <laughs> um, and then they put it in a then you'd put it in a big vat of water and then you would take like a screen and like sift it out and all those the kozo fibers are really long and really strong uh. um, which is why they became preferred to making paper with them and they'd stick together and then they would dry and they would make um, a really strong sheet of paper and if you've seen um, I found this out recently. I didn't know it was the same paper. In Japan, you know, they have like the paper room dividers on the door oh, or the window. Yeah. Uh -huh. That's that's paper mulberry paper or that's kozo paper. Fascinating. Okay, so that's very what they use. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense because I was wondering why like this is the tree, but I guess it it has to do with those fibers and the the characteristics of them versus maybe. Yeah, it's it's a really like soft wood. You can very easily peel it. Um, with your teeth, you could just sort of start peeling the bark back. You don't mm. need a lot of tools or strength. And the fibers stay really long. And the longer the plant fiber, the stronger the paper you get. So, like, if you uh. think of newsprint, that's made with, like, really small fibers because mm -hmm. it's a very fragile paper. But if you go to Japan and, like, go to one of those paper doors, like, you can't just, like, bust through it very easily. It's It's got some strength to it. Ah, fascinating. Wow, that's so cool. Um, what else? Do you have any other uh, fun facts and dazzling details about the history of, of this tree? Uh, yeah, it was... I also... I learned a lot more than I kind of already knew for this. Um, because the mulberry, they chose it and they chose very well because they discovered a lot of different properties that it holds when brought into paper making. Mm -hmm. It's that it holds in humidity. And it's very absorbent is why they ended up using it for walls and stuff in the house because mm -hmm. it kept it warm in winter and it's also really good for getting a feathery effect with inks so if you think of like ancient chinese arts where like the mountain and the kind of like fades off they would choose the mulberry paper over other materials like bamboo or something that they also might be using at the time because it was just better for painting on it like became the artist's plant um which also, as a painter myself, is another connection that I really enjoyed finding out that they That's like super that yeah, so it's like probably like the way that it, abs it absorbs, or like I can imagine that for like the way that it yeah, it's paint. like it's just got a natural absorbency um, mm -hmm. compared to like they might just be using different types of grasses, um, recycled like rags, fishing nets were also used way back when, so like anything like hemp or anything, but it just wouldn't wouldn't take the ink as well as a good paper mulberry paper. Interesting, interesting. Uh, I wonder if you know, is it still used for paper today? Yes, yeah. In a, like it's an industrial used, scale? Or? It's, um, it's still used in industrial and in handmade sort of scales. Mm -hmm. um, very much in Japan and Korea, there's only a few like handmade paper makers, but for more like industrial, they kind of mix the fibers in with like modern wood fibers and send mm -hmm. them through um, big paper machines and they can like kind of blast out a lot of sheets that way but yeah, it's still a good material yeah that industrial process is kind of fascinating to me is yeah it, it's it, called it, washi if you see mm -hmm. if they see washi paper so you know washi tape and there's washi paper that's kozo oh okay yeah i know that word uh yeah that's very cool very cool. i'm gonna look look for it and like kind of try to find some of that paper and feel it and understand the difference that's really interesting very cool um yeah w w before you get into anything else you have to say about it i'm curious about um, where you said you saw them in this place where it's also 
like paper making related place in Ohio. Tell me more about that and like what is your experience seeing the tree, but also this place that is connected to the trees and the paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Cleveland, Ohio, um, there is the Morgan Conservatory, which is just like a big studio space and like art gallery space for paper and uh, also like um, what's it called? Like uh, printing. Mm-hmm. I'm totally blanking. What's it called when you well, do like, like, like the screen print? It's not screen printing. It's like a like how old like, like a Guten. Gutenberg oh, oh yeah, like printing press kind of thing. Like, yeah, and uh, printing, like, pr- yeah, printing press arts, block printing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I was totally blanking. But it's, uh, they have an annual Kozo harvest or annual, and I keep flipping between paper mulberry Kozo, but Audience know, I'm talking, up, it's no problem. yeah, I'm talking about the same thing. Um, they have a Kozo garden and they have an annual Kozo harvest. Uh, which I think takes place in November-ish, if I'm correct, every year. And they, everyone comes and volunteers for two days, picks up this big garden that they've set up in this hole in the wall in the middle of Cleveland in this back parking lot. Uh, and we all harvest it. And then they vol- they at the, at the conservatory, they process it, they strip the bark back. And I haven't been able to participate in the whole um shebang because it's never worked out timing wise but i have been up there and walked through the garden and it's just like it feels like a different plant you like you immediately look at it and you know it's not native and so Mm. it it was kind of like oh my gosh this is a different environment they've cultivated back here very very interesting it's very cool it's really fun to uh, that that sounds so i wonder if there's anything like that around me that sounds like a fun activity to like do an old fashioned paper harvest. And it yeah, it was fun paper harvest is a fun way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was That's fun to cool. see it. They had it like a display of all it at the different stages of being processed for paper. And so it was really cool just to like see those materials and see what it looks like. And they talk about how long it takes because you have all like, you know, a branch this big and I'm like doing like I don't know like twelve inches. And uh-huh. you got to peel it back and you just get the little bit of inner bark. You have to boil that, process it, blend it. And you have to do that, you know, 20, 50 more times wow. to get enough to make a big sheet of paper. Wow. So, so uh, that's, wow. Okay. You said that before, but now I'm just like thinking about it because it, it, that's a lot, right? That just that inner bark, like, yeah, because I'm thinking of, I mean, what I know about modern paper production is you're like, chipping entire you know all of the wood fiber and mm-hmm. like, you know stuff like that's like a but you need like industrial like wood chippers to do that where yeah like, if you think of like a little bush branch versus like a big birch tree branch yeah it's a very different amount of material that you could work with but you know in 105 ad you didn't have industrial wood chippers so yeah <laughs> you know, having a plant that you can actually get that material out that's, that's true. very interesting fair yeah that's that makes a lot of sense um, cool. Do you have anything else about um, fun facts, dazzling details about paper? Yeah, I had a couple of like some rapid fire stuff that awesome. I found out. Uh, we have the oldest intact sheet of paper in Japan is paper mulberry paper from wow. 702. Whoa. It's one of the oldest surviving sheets of paper. And I looked up like, how has this lasted so long without it's like not really discolored. It's not ripped really at all. It's just like as they wrote it thousand two thousand years ago um because it lacks um lichen which is in a lot of trees mm-hmm. and that's just like a like a chemical that's just naturally occurring in trees and that that's going to be in your printer paper 
and that's what discolors it. So if you get archival paper for your art, they've done a lot of processing to get that ligand out uh. of there. And Kozo, Paper Mulberry, they just don't have that because it's a different uh. type of plant. Um, and because they're longer than what you get from like trees that are industrially processed, um, longer fibers, I mean, mm -hmm. then they last longer. Mm -hmm. So some of the longest lasting books and paper are made from this little tree that grows in Asia. Do you know what's written on that, um, that oldest piece of paper? It's a census. It's a page from the census. I had a feeling it was going to be something kind of boring. <laughs> I mean, you know, not boring, to, yeah, but still, it wasn't like, uh, most of the paper I think used in history was for like those uh, more utilitarian purposes, not yeah. like beautiful It was very stuff, interesting. Yeah. That's like back to like the artisan thing. Chinese artisans would be like, I want the mulberry paper, but you can use the bamboo and the raditon um, for office and census government stuff. We don't have to use the fancy paper for that. Ah. They like determined what material based off use. Right, uh, right. Which that is really sense. like, you just get paper nowadays. It's yeah. like, it's trees for this. But this is a fancy census or somebody ran out of the cheap paper one day. And like, yeah. <laughs> go to the drawer for the fancy stuff. Very interesting. I'm going to look that up. I'll, I'll put a link in that to the show notes because I, I want to take a look at that. So that's And cool. And besides paper, um, I found out like last minute that, and this makes sense because paper, it's a fiber. You're using fibers from a tree. And um, Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, and a lot of the other Polynesian islands, it's used to make a cloth called tapa cloth. And oh. it's basically the same process as making paper, but instead of tearing it apart and putting it in a big bat of water, you just hit it with a grooved mallet. Mm. Um, and I watched a video this morning, and it just, you take this little strip of bark, and then as they keep hitting it, it gets to like six, seven, eight inches wide and however long and then you just have this beautiful cloth that they just beat wow. out of this tree bark whoa it's just like the cloth is just like thin they've just thinned it out like dough yeah and it's amazing wow. what it looks like you wouldn't think that was a tree you know the other day that's so cool i'm gonna definitely look that up too uh send me a link to that video i want to put that in the show notes too that's, yeah that's and they cool. and then they to make like a big sheet they would they just get this um type of glue i don't know what kind of glue and just glue all the strips together to make a big wow. sheet that they can make blankets and dresses and what have That's you out awesome. of yeah that 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 i mean the history of paper is really awesome i think the history of cloth is also super awesome I think there's so many plants out there that we've kind of this you know the our culture has kind of forgotten about or doesn't know about and i think yeah. we like we end up kind of going to just like this um common denominator and sticking with that i think paper i think you could probably talk about that about paper as well right the way that we deal with paper mm -hmm. is kind of like one or two processes that are like common but i don't know why don't you talk about a little bit more about like what is interesting to you about paper making and kind of the different ways you can make paper besides maybe paper mulberry um i think well like what you were saying it it's it's history is always intertwined with cloth um recycled rags in industrial europe would get thrown to the paper mills mm. and they would tear up old wash rags and old clothes and turn those into paper. Um, and that's where you get cotton paper, which is what watercolor paper is now today. It's hundred percent cotton. Um, so it's, it, those two uh. industries have always been combined. Like in China, I was just so amazed by what materials. And that's what a lot of that I experiment with in my practice is what can I put into this vat of water that's going to come out as a sheet of paper that's still usable 
Like what's uh-huh. going to process into little strings of fiber. So I've tried like polyester and cotton fabrics and like is tissue paper different? What if it has the glossy coat? Back in China, they used fishing nets. Mm. Uh, they would take whatever scraps they could that, you know, was a fiber if you broke it down far enough and mix it all together and you'd get, you know, something useful out of garbage. I guess I never thought about it this way, but it makes sense that like, and this is probably not very true today, but I think historically it sounds like paper making was kind of this recycling world as well as it was like a new fiber Absolutely. World. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's a, uh, and I know in Japan, I cannot, the name is now escaping me. It's like Kamagami something. It's like, like origami because gami means paper, mm. but mm. There's, there's some Japanese word that repeats there, but it was paper shop paper, which was in terms what was recycled paper because mm-hmm. once once the government officials whatever was done with it or it was really like the poorer people they used paper once you know you made your to-do list you checked it off you don't need that sheet of paper anymore you take it back to your neighborhood paper mill they put it back in the vat and they give you a new sheet of paper and exchange it because they couldn't afford to keep getting raw wow. materials yeah so once there's enough paper in the world they just kept recycling it and they saved the new materials for the census report or what have you. That's super fascinating. I feel like we, we're we like missing that now. There's like so much like, like I think about all the junk mail I get and yeah. that's not being turned into paper anymore. That's just like- It is made. when it goes to my house, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you make paper out of junk mail? Yes, I have a whole recycling bin. People bring me, I, have, I, I work next to a radio station and they donated all their old transcripts that they have for the show. So I have like a big stack of radio transcripts that are becoming paper, old roadmaps. That is so cool. Now, is there like a kind of, like I'm thinking about the junk mail I get, is there a kind of paper that you would get in the mail that is like the best for making paper or is there stuff that's really bad for making paper? Anything that's colored, anything that has color in it, because I like to try to dye the paper with paper that's already been dyed a color instead of trying to, bring in outside sources Mm. um, because it's just harder to get the right natural dyes or synthetic dyes and try to make everything the same color but if you get like a really colorful sheet or promo in the mail it kind of all that ink will spread out once you start blending it uh, and it kind of gives you a free color dye without you having to buy (laughs) extra inks interesting that is so fascinating what a a fun hobby Um, I feel like I feel like I'm one of those people that's like not very connected to paper anymore. Like I have terrible handwriting. I use my phone for everything, but it is really, really interesting. Um, yeah, that that uh, you, you've you've piqued my interest in paper. I know. Yeah, I kind of I've been obsessed with it, and so like I've had a resurgence myself because I was very digital too. And now I'm like, you know what? No, this paper stuff's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a lot of I history know. in it. You're just now making me think I realized that like I, we made paper in like elementary school. I remember this process yeah. now of like taking some kind of other paper. And I, I I remember at the time thinking, why are we why are we blending up paper to make new paper <laughs> that's like slightly worse paper? Because <laughs> at the time we probably weren't doing it recycle. But it, it makes sense now in this recycling context. Um and and if you have if you have, you know, good equipment and good processes, you can probably get a pretty good sheet of paper out too. Mm-hmm. You could definitely make it into to better sheets if you really like get the right stuff, get the right mixture down. Yeah, fascinating, so cool, and really, I mean, is there anything else besides water and the the fiber? Nope. Wow. 
sometimes you might use a sizing, um, which is something that just lets ink kind of sit on the surface a little bit more. Um, in like ancient Egypt, they used like, I'm going to get this wrong. So papermaker historians don't get mad at me, but they'd get like water and like muddy water and like different like saps and plant saps and kind of coat the papyrus with that. And mm. that just made it kind of smoother and made it more legible. Today, it's some random chemical thing that I use uh, that just makes the ink kind of not bleed out like the Chinese artists mm -hmm, want. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's to stop that. And so you can actually write more legibly on it. I see. That makes sense. Very interesting. Okay. I, we got away from paper mulberry for a second. Did we miss anything about paper mulberry? Yeah. I had one more thing. It is right. edible. You can't eat it. If you find it, you can snack on it. The You're leaves? okay. <laughs> yes. The leaves and the fruit. Not, if you see the fruit, yeah. They said, I was reading someone said the fruit's just really juicy. It's not a lot of like nutrition, but you know, if you want a little, they don't really keep well, but if you just want to pick it up and have like a little gusher, little plant gusher, you're okay. Very interesting. <laughs> Do you have, okay, I'm going to look that up as well. That's, that's super cool. Um, and yeah, it said the, the leaves um, are also often like just boiled and chewed, um, just eaten off the branch. I read that in like Eastern medicine, it's used as a fever reducer mixed into like a tea very interesting so I, wow, I multiple I was, uses i wasn't gonna expect that it was edible um because of all the other uses but yeah that's so cool so you have paper cloth and medicine <laughs> and snacks Just a little scrap of paper I'll remember till I die Just a little scrap of paper And a single word goodbye One word written with a pencil That was sharp as any knife Just a little scrap of paper And a moment well, thank you for sharing about paper mulberry with me. Do you mind if I share a plan with you? Yeah, I'm excited to see what you got. Cool. So I kind of went a little bit basic this this time, um, and I'm actually surprised no one has chosen this plant before. Um, and so if you have anything to say, I think a lot of people have things to say about this plant, um, but it's just because it's this time of year and they're just starting to pop up in my yard, and that is the daffodil. Oh, I love a daffodil. <laughs> they are a really great plant i think they're so emblematic of spring like they're that that you know there's yeah. other plants like that too but they're one of the top i think you see them popping up and you know that spring is here and yeah they're just in the area where they're growing in my yard the leaves came up like maybe a few weeks ago but now you can just see the little like you can see where the flower will be now which is mm -hmm. pretty cool um but yeah, they're they're really cool. Yeah, do you yeah do you have any like what experience with daffodils? What's your if, we, if someone says daffodil, what comes to mind? I think of um, I was a big like Tinkerbell fan, so I think of them being used as like little fruit cups or like little drinking cups. Oh yeah, because they have like the little center and the little leaves that come out. And I'm pretty sure in one of the Tinkerbell movies or fairy like off branches that Disney did, I remember them drinking like dew and stuff oh, with yeah. it so it'd be like their little teacup was these daffodils so i always like thought of them as very magical sort of fantasy plants that makes sense um yeah i i can totally picture that now as well um going to the, like the fantasy side or the mythology side about it um you probably remember this from from some 
uh, school, but the so the scientific name of the daffodil is the genus. There's actually tons of them, and they've really been hybridized and stuff like that. So there, there's locking down which one you have in your yard is a little bit tricky. They're probably most most likely, and and daffodil growers out there might say this is wrong, but I think they're most likely predominantly narcissus pseudonarcissus, pseudonarcissus, which I don't know why it's pseudo. But anyway, the narcissus genus is from the Greek myth of the guy Narcissus, which is where we get Narcissist from. And it's one of the many Greek myths where somebody got turned into a plant as punishment. <laughs> happened a lot in Greek mythology. But yeah, if you remember, he's the guy who was so obsessed with himself that he was looking at himself, his reflection in the river, and then he got turned into a flower that droops down looking into the water like like a daffodil. Would. Yes. Yeah, I remember yeah. that myth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's pretty funny that that's where the it, the the narcissus part comes from. I was a little bit more curious about the name daffodil because it's a little bit of a weird word if you think about it. Daffodil, mm-hmm. like I couldn't quite think exactly like where the etymology came from, like which language. Um, and from this is I'm not 100 percent clear on this. I, I know at the end it makes sense, but the beginning doesn't. So apparently there is a Greek word um, which is uh, asphodelos. And this was referring to a flower that I guess no one's 100% sure what that flower was, but it was probably like a daffodil or in the daffodil family, but no one's exactly sure what it was. But that word, um, asphodelos, kind of evolved, and at some point it was referred to in English as aphodil. And in Dutch, there was uh, basically the word daffodil comes from Dutch where it had the article de in front of it. So it was like de aphodil. And oh eventually they joined together to become daffodil. So yeah, that's so the name daffodil is this like conjunction of duh and aphodil. That's you could have a whole different thing episode on etymology, a whole nother podcast on etymology. That's the journey is crazy. <laughs> totally. This podcast is almost just an etymology podcast. I go into it. I really love that. And there's so many interesting things you can learn about a plant be from its etymology. Um but yeah, in this case, it's just kind of a funny thing. Like we, English, that happens a lot where we, we have a name for something that's kind of a uh, a weird mispronunciation of something else. The one that always comes to mind, which I've talked about a lot on the show, is dandelion is a mispronunciation of the French word for it, which was dent de lion, which means lion's tooth. Oh, that makes but a lot of sense. But we call it a dandelion because it doesn't yeah. make sense. Like every other language, it means lion's tooth, but in, in English, we call it a dandy lion. Um, because we're just so fancy lion for tooth. Yeah, Yeah. we're just mispronouncing (laughs) the French word for for teeth. Um, So okay, that that's the I think all the name stuff. Um, It is native to Europe, uh, North Africa, and West Asia, Mediterranean, all that part of the world. As far as I understand, I don't think there's any species of Narcissus native to to our part of the world, but it is a very common. garden plant and people love it so much so you see yeah, it everywhere. is it invasive at all or is it just made its home here it's not really yeah i think that's you know what is invasive and what is not is a is kind of a difficult question um i didn't see anything pop up my research of saying yes this is invasive but i've <laughs> definitely seen them in places that are not in people's yards too so you know i i think they probably have escaped you know uh, cultivation and, and popped up places. And yeah, maybe that, that's actually a good question. Maybe I should dig into that a little bit more. Um, I did find out that there are like, they're, they're so popular and they've been, they've been um, cultivated for such a long time 
that there are like 25,000 different registered cultivars at least of oh, the wow. daffodils. <laughs> and, uh, and so like, you know, they, and they also hybridize really um, easily. Uh, my cat just saw something out the window. He's like freaking out. So <laughs> I, I, yeah, the animals are always part of the show. I heard your dog earlier as well. I, I know. I was I like, can... I know the mic's picking it up, but there's something I can do. <laughs> Nothing you can do about the animals. Yeah. I just, yeah, it's, it's, it's always fun. Um, yeah. So they're just like a really widely cultivated and, and hybridized a plant and, and sold, you know, if you Google them, there's like so many different names of different, um, cultivars of them. So I think those are pretty fascinating. Um, I, I don't have too many other things, but I think the main thing I want to dig into here, which I thought was super fascinating, is um, they are toxic daffodils, mm. and so don't try to eat daffodils. The most they're most often, I think, when people have been accidentally poisoned by daffodils, is people confuse them with an onion or like a shallot because when they're growing in the winter, they're only a bulb right they're they're one of those plants that comes from a bulb mostly and so there are you know cases where people probably in times of like desperation were digging and found something that looks like a little onion um and actually ate it uh quick tip to anybody who's interested in like you know eating wild foods in general the stuff in the onion family which is the why am i blanking on the name of that the the allium genus they smell like onions or garlic the smell mm -hmm. is the key. If it smells like onion or garlic, I've, I've heard you're probably safe that it's an onion or garlic. Um, but yeah, still know what you're talking about. But yeah, if you have a little bulb, uh, you know, don't just assume that, that it's something edible. <laughs> don't take chances on that. There's a lot of them out there that are not. Um, but I think one of the reasons why daffodil is so popular as a garden plant is because it is toxic. Deer don't eat it. Rabbits don't eat it. Squirrels don't eat it. It's very resistant to a lot of those um, things that normally mess up our gardens. And so I think maybe that's one of the reasons why it is is like so popular. Also, no, it's so beautiful. But yeah, yeah, it's really pretty. Yeah. Could you like, so would people like outline their gardens with it to protect like what's inside? Or do they just, do you normally find like people just go straight daffodils? That's an interesting question. You know, I, I, I've seen it on the edges of gardens a lot. And I wonder if that would dissuade those creatures or not. Or it's more just about... At least there's something in your yard that doesn't get yeah, eaten. Yeah, because I have like I have like a vegetable garden, a native plant garden, and I just I let the animals eat it as they yeah. are because I don't need to sustain myself on it, and then I take what's left. But I'm wondering if I had put daffodils up, if that would help ensure a bigger harvest. It's an interesting question. Um, I, I'll I'll look into that because I yeah I just wonder if they would just skip the daffodils and go straight for the other stuff. Um, but yeah, if you want to have something pretty and not have the deer eat it, the daffodils are a good choice. I didn't know this, and I was going to Google more about this, and I, I ran out of time. But I did read that because they are poisonous, that if you, uh, when you cut them, if you put them in a vase with other flowers, they could kill the other flowers because oh, that wow. compounds, um, which is called uh, lycorene, has is damaging to other plants as well. But I don't know if there's some ways around that. I don't yeah, thinking about it. I don't think you see daffodils mixed in with other flowers very often. Um, in in um, Bouquets, so something to just yeah, be aware of. Yeah, I never, of. yeah, I never would have thought of that with like a poisonous plant that even cut, and in a bouquet would would still cause harm. Yeah, and that's that's not the case with every uh, poison, but apparently this lycorene is pretty pretty strong, and like the the um, toxicity is at pretty low levels. Um, there were some details about like toxicity, and I guess they're not one hundred percent sure what the mechanism is, and it seems like there might even be multiple mechanisms for toxicity. Um, with that said. And, like, always, audience, be very aware of this. Like, lots of stuff has medicinal uses. 
there is some history of medicinal use of daffodils, but like, don't mess with it because it is very poisonous. But that said, there are some, there is some ongoing research um, of lycarine for anti-cancer um, drugs. And so that comes down to this thing we've said on the show over and over again, going back to our friend, the, the, uh, the ancient Swiss alchemist Paracelsus. He said the dose makes the poison. And in the case of lycarine, I think the dose being poison is very small, but there might be some ways through science of, of targeting it and using some of those properties it has in medicinal purposes. But that's like, like there's nothing, on, I think there's nothing on the market right now, but there are people looking into it, which I thought was interesting. And that kind of ties into some of these like ancient uses where people did use it uh, medicinally. But like I said, that is, uh, you know, a dangerous thing. That is very interesting. I just, I, I love plants getting like researched more to be used in, in different like applications besides just making art projects with them. Yeah. It's good to know that they have other, other plants out there have other, maybe more significant to, to human society. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, you know, it is so fascinating because so many plants have these uses and these traditional uses, but they, uh, they sometimes just don't get the, the, the research needed to like look into those uses in modern times. And it just, I think it has to do with the funding issue and, and whatever, Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's so much cool stuff to unlock in plants out there if we had the time and the and the money to do all that research. So um, I thought it was pretty cool. Last other thing about daffodils is, uh, and I talked, <laughs> I've talked about this in several episodes, and I was very wrong about this on a recent episode. So I'm going to see if I can get this right. They are a bulb. Okay. A bulb. They grow from a bulb. A bulb is one of several different kinds of underground energy storage mechanisms that plants utilize. So the, the big ones are um, bulb, corm, and tuber. And just for the audience, and to remind myself, because I got this so wrong, I even corrected a guest. I was very embarrassed because I corrected the guest and realized I was like so <laughs> wrong. Um, a bulb is uh, modified leaves, essentially. And that's why they have the layers like an onion. So an onion is a bulb. And a, and a daffodil, if you were to cut it in half, you would see those layers like um, like an onion. That's what makes it a, a bulb. Oh, that's very cool that you can yeah. that you can do that. Yeah. So it's it's basically it's the way the leaves come up, they're modified in the way and they, they stay underground and they like come up in layers. A corm, um, which I don't think of I can't think of exactly which plant is a corm right now, but a corm is essentially a modified stem. So if you cut it in half, it has kind of like one outer layer, like where the outside of a stem would be, but the inside is kind of homogeneous, mm -hmm. kind of like something like the inside of a plant. And then a tuber is modified roots. So that's kind of like the three ways. I think I got that right <laughs> this time, audience. Three yeah, times so they, a charm. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So so yeah, daffodils are, um, are bulbs. And what's interesting about this, I find this always so fascinating. The most of the way that we reproduce daffodils is from bulbs. And so the bulbs will split, and so the, they will reproduce over time underground with the bulbs splitting into new plants. Um, but they do also produce seeds. Um, we mm. just don't think of seeds very often because it takes a lot longer for a daffodil seed to flower. So it's like three years or something if you plant a seed oh, wow. before you see a flower. So it's much faster to buy the bulbs and to plant the bulbs. But I think that's so fascinating with plants where they have multiple reproductive strategies is very different than, than mammals and like most yeah. animals, right? They have like two entirely different ways of like reproducing themselves. Um, and they, you know, they, they, they both have their benefits, right? The daffodils can spread, you know, slower, but 
it's more, I think, more of a sure bet to do it through the yeah, bulbs. Yeah, safer. There's, they're less likely to get, you know, eaten and blown away or not land in the right spot. You're already in the dirt. Right. So and then and you're like assured that that process is going to happen. Whereas like a seed, you have to wait for it to germinate and maybe it never germinates because it gets mm-hmm. crunched by an animal or something like that. But I, I never really thought about what daffodil seeds look like, but you can look online and see how the flower turns into a little seed pod. And then there's these black seeds within the seed pod. And it's just one of those things we just never think about because we were thinking about the bulbs, um, but we don't really consider that other method, but it's something they do. And it's one of those things that's kind of funny because mm-hmm. the purpose of a flower is to make a seed. So if something has a flower, it does have seeds. It's just a lot of plants don't rely, in fact, sometimes rely even less on the seed part. It's more of a, it could be more of like a backup method. Yeah, I just looked up a picture of the seed pods and that's, it's very strange because that's not at all what you think of yeah. a daffodil. It's like at the base of the flower, just this like little pepper, like a green pepper. Yeah. Full of seeds. So I have to look this year on my daffodils and just see. I mean, it's possible that the daffodils that I have don't, you know, end up getting properly um, pollinated. And so maybe that maybe sometimes in, in like, I don't know what the pollinator for daffodils are. Um, so that's an interesting question. But I, I'm going to take a look last year. Oh, one, I keep I keep saying I have one last thing, but I do have one last thing, which is um, daffodils are cool because they bloom really, really early, right? They bloom in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the flowers don't last very long, but they're still the, the greens there. And I mm-hmm. learned this myself, but it's just a word of advice to the audience. Just because the flower's gone, you got to leave those greens. Don't mow them after the flower's gone because the greens are absorbing the sunlight and storing them in the bulb and storing that energy for the next year. Oh, right. that's good to know. We we so, have happenstance left the greens one year, um, but that's good to know. We that was what we were supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. So once they've yellowed and kind of died back, then you okay to like mow them or, or mow them. But yeah, that that's part of their life cycle, right? And it's a really cool life cycle. And a lot of plants have that. They the the greens come up, the flower comes up, the pollination happens, but then the flower goes away, but the greens stay up, absorbing that sunlight, and then they store it into the energy in the bulb for the next year. Thank you. What an interesting little flower. Yeah. Well, that's all I have to say about the daffodil. Thanks for joining me, Jessica. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I was happy to talk about paper and and learn about the weird reproduction of daffodils. I didn't think that much of them, but it turns out they have a lot. They're a lot more complex under the cute little teacup at the top. Hot diggity daffodil. What a very fun episode talking with Jessica about paper mulberry and the daffodil. And wow. Paper is super fascinating. It's one of those things I think we take for granted, but it is a super cool process. Its connection with plants is very cool. And yeah, I'm going to be reading more about paper. Maybe there'll be another episode in the future where we talk about paper and some other plants connected to it. Because man, what a, what a cool topic. Now, before we go, um, I just wanted to play the audio of a very interesting poem I found about the daffodil. And that poem is by the famous romantic poet William Wordsworth. And it is called I wandered lonely as a cloud. Let's listen, and then the show will be over. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, They stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. 
The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft, when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Jessica Razor. Jessica is an Ohio papermaker. You can learn more about Jessica and her papermaking process on Instagram at Jessica Arts and BTW Jessica is spelled with a K. If you like Rootbound and you want to help support the show, visit rootboundpodcast.com slash support to find all the ways you can support the show, including just telling a friend about it. Rootbound is hosted by paper pondering podcaster Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lonnie. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, you could wander lonely as a cloud that floats on high over vales and hills, and all at once you could see a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. You cry. I cry. We all cry for onions.